a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer survivors and patients and menopause experts, specialists, to help us find solutions to our symptoms, but also lots of ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and today we're going to be discussing what happens when cancer comes along before you've had a chance to start a family. New studies find that cancer diagnosis rates are going up in younger adults, and this will mean that more young women are going to be diagnosed with cancer earlier in their life and potentially before they've had a possibility to start a family. And today I want to share with you a really remarkable story of our beautiful guest, Elizabeth. Elizabeth shares her story of what happened when she was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 30, her desire to become a mum. She waited for five years to try for IVF. And then she also talks us through what happened when life gave her a second cancer diagnosis. This story is full of hope and options and possibilities. We talk about fertility, pregnancy, IVF, all the way to surrogacy. We talk about how many ways there are of creating a family. And if anything, this is a real story of resilience, hope, and Elizabeth shares this so, so beautifully with us. I'll also link a great charity into the show notes because I totally can see how this episode might trigger sad feelings for many of our listeners. Please do reach out and talk to someone if you're feeling affected. Hello and good morning, Elizabeth. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. Excited to be here. Um, it's amazing you're here. It's really early in the morning for you. Tell everyone where you live. <laughs> where are you based? So I'm based in New Jersey in the United States and uh, it is early, but I'm a morning person. So happy to happy to be here. Thank you. And you reached out to me with an incredible story. Tell me how you found me or the podcast or how that connection was established because we haven't actually met in person. Yeah. I know it's really nice to see you um, on the screen. And uh, essentially, I I was diagnosed with breast cancer eight years ago, and then had a recurrence. Um, and we can get into more of that. But the second recurrence, um, I was in an induced menopause and was having a more difficult time with it, and just sort of took to the internet and Instagram to find information about it, which um, I think someone had actually shared your um, had reshared your podcast. And as I looked at each of the titles, it was as if every single one of them was speaking to what I've been feeling through this journey. And um, I'm young; I'm, I'm 38 years old, and to feel as if there was a community of people both asking the questions, but then a community of people who had answers um, to help really, really felt um, just really empowering and wonderful. And so I, I reached out to connect with you, one, because I was just so grateful that there was a platform for education and awareness around this, but then two, hoping that you know, there's some uniqueness to my story and I, I hope that I can help someone else in the same way that I felt helped by the people who've joined in the past. We're going to talk about the urge and the yearning to become a mummy post breast cancer or cancer diagnosis. And I know there are so many people on our podcast every single week who've been diagnosed young. We know the statistics of early diagnosis is rising. Doctors can't really quite understand why, but there are more younger and younger women diagnosed with breast cancer or cancer in general. And it's scary and worrying. And at the same time, we've got to live our lives, right? And we can't live our lives always worrying what might happen next. You were 30. Mm -hmm. And you found yeah. a lump. I and did. Tell me more about that time in your life. Were you in a relationship? Were you on your own? What yeah. happened then? It's interesting. I I was just turning 30. Uh, I And I had thrown myself a birthday party. I was single. I had just sort of 
purchased my first apartment on my own. Um, I had been out of a breakup and I was feeling wonderful, right? Like I, I, I didn't feel sick. I think this is kind of a common story among a lot of people that you talk to. You feel super healthy. You're achieving your goals. I was in grad school. I had just landed my dream job um, and I did feel a lump. And I, my first instinct was that I wanted to ignore it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I knew I couldn't. And, you know, it very quickly materialized to you know, a mammogram, a biopsy, and then the diagnosis um, of an estrogen positive um, breast cancer. Um, and it was it was scary because at the time, uh, the doctor standing in front of me had, had kind of really quickly said, you know, you're going to need chemotherapy and mastectomy and really immediately. Um, and I actually ended up getting a second opinion uh, and it obviously still was cancer. That wasn't what we were questioning, but the treatment plan ended up changing for me. So they had said, let's do the surgery first. Um, and let's also, um, talk about fertility options, which the first doctor had it brought up to me. Um, and then let's test the tumor to make a determination on whether you need chemotherapy or not. And um, it turned out that I actually did it. Um, the ANCA level, it's called, was of a certain level that I actually didn't need the chemotherapy. So it was it was at this moment that I realized, wow, like personalized patient care, where they're putting the patient at the forefront and really asking questions about what's important to you and your future, um, was was really what was going to be important in my journey. And so when they talked to me about harvesting my eggs as someone at 30 who was single and really wasn't sure what the future was going to look like for me, I was so grateful for that moment that they had really offered that to me. Yeah, and I've got goosebumps listening to you now because whenever someone tells me about their diagnosis, it puts me right back into when I had the news. And I'm sure everyone listening to our conversation today is going to have some flashbacks of what happened to them. Some people look back with regret. They might think, oh, I wish I would have allowed myself the time for a second opinion. I certainly do. I definitely didn't have the calm or the guidance. Uh, we did go for a second opinion, but actually my second opinion was even more of a rush, rush, rush. Let's do more. Mm. Let's be more... Um, uh, let's take all of the lymph nodes. And it was maybe more drastic looking back than it would have been if I had gone with my first opinion. And so looking back, I think, gosh, I I wish I would have had time. Everyone, you know, a lot of people, you know, looking back, you think I could have had a couple of weeks to decide and really get my head around. But I wanted to get rid of my tumor so quickly, like mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. If someone had said, we can do it tomorrow, I take your left arm for it, I would have said, there you go, go for it. <laughs> and so... Yeah. You know, there are these feelings, isn't it? Get rid, get started. And at the same time, your life would have been totally different if you hadn't gone through that process. And how amazing it worked for you like that. Yeah, I feel really lucky. I didn't have the the sound mind to do it. It was actually my sister who said, like, take a second here. Um, why don't you go have some more conversations, which I'm really grateful for. Um, and And obviously, because... I, and I know we're going to talk more about this too, just this, this piece around being able to harvest my eggs um, ended up not even knowing impacting this whole story, you know, almost 10 years of my life in such a way. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. 73% of people who listen to my podcast haven't yet clicked the follow button on their podcast player. I want these conversations to reach as many women as possible who might need it. So if you've ever enjoyed this podcast, please hit the follow button now. And so you then had surgery first and yes. you harvested your eggs. Like, can you talk us through that process a bit? Sure. But before you do, I just want to say to anyone listening who might have not had the chance um, there are helplines out there. There are charities out there who help with that. And I will put some into the show notes because I know this topic is so sensitive. And I know some people would have embarked on their treatment and they would have not had that opportunity. But I also know we will, all of us, will probably guide other people and often young people through these journeys. We're talking about our journeys, perhaps. And so maybe this information can help us talk about it to someone else and help them like your sister helped you to say, take a moment, maybe get a second opinion, talk about your fertility and your options. 
What happens when you harvest your eggs just being diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, it's such a it's it's a really good question. Um, I, I can remember sitting down across from the fertility doctor and, and saying, OK, we're going to do this. And she started to explain it. And the, the cancer hospital had a fertility specialist and then the actual fertility doctor. And um, what I noticed and, and it's going to get at your earlier point, I said to the person, I know that there is so many different ways to make a family like this is one avenue. I'm going to try my best to have a family the way that I was understand one to be, but I, I just know that there's so many different ways. And I think having that mindset really helped me enter this path forward of, okay, we're going to take the medications to, to, to go through IVF, harvest my eggs. I didn't have a partner. Um, and so there wasn't the, the conversation around fertilizing those eggs. It was, let's try to do this. Let's try to do it quickly, right? So that we can continue to move on with your treatment plan. Um, and so they harvested the eggs after the medication. I had a um, single mastectomy um, and reconstruction surgery. And, um, and then I started tamoxifen. And the way all of it had been explained to me was, you know, we want to keep you as safe as possible. And tamoxifen, you really should be on in a 10-year window. And at least for my, again, for my treatment plan. And they said, but we really know that those are your 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 critical years of having a child. So if you could just stick, stick on and stay on tamoxifen for five years, we will then talk about you coming off of it and trying to have a baby via IVF, knowing that IVF might help you have a child more quickly. We can be more intentional with it. And then we'll put you right back on that tamoxifen, right? right? And in a weird way, that was comforting to me. It felt like a plan in a world mm. where there was so much lack of control. And then as someone who was single, looking for, you know, a partner and someone to have kids with, it took all the pressure off. It was like, oh, okay, you know, for five years, having a child is off the table. And so why don't I just focus on, you know, dating and, and getting to know people, right? Like that pressure, that biological clock that women face, all of a sudden was taken from me. And the silver lining was it was okay. Like that's off the table. Um, yeah. And I guess you had enough to deal with because let's face it, dating, um, maybe entering sexual relationships yeah. after a cancer diagnosis, after a single mastectomy with a reconstruction is difficult, right? Like it's not yeah. like you're a normal woman in her early 30s. You have so much baggage in a way to bring into relationships. Were you open about your experiences of cancer when you met people or did you try and pretend almost yeah. that you're like any normal 30 something year old? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I can remember that feeling of just, you know, this wasn't what my 30s was supposed to be, right? Like I, I was just supposed to be at the beach. Um, and uh, it, it was it was different. And I remember that first time when I made my dating profile, you know, on an online app, you know, after cancer and, and trying to get back out there, thinking how how much did I want to be? How how transparent and open did I want to be? And I realized, you know, I wasn't going to withhold this information. It wasn't going to be, you know, in my tagline, but it was going to be that something that I was going to talk about um, because it's a part of me. It's a part of my journey. I didn't do anything wrong, right? Like it wasn't. And um, I I figured if someone couldn't understand that. Um, who was starting to get to know me, then they probably weren't going to be someone that I wanted in my life. And, you know, I was fortunate to enter a relationship, you know, a couple years after. And I remember that first moment in sharing this information. And, and he was just mind boggled that it would ever be something that I was nervous about saying, you know. Yeah. Um, but as a woman, as a woman whose appearance had changed and had had reconstruction, you know, those things are just top of mind, of course. Of course they are. In a way, it's good to have a plan, isn't it? I remember in the early days before my treatment plan was put together for me, that was the worst time. Once you embark on a plan, however difficult it is, whether people rock up to chemo every week, every three weeks, whether it's surgery and then long-term endocrine treatment, to have a plan 
seems reassuring. Mm. It also means, though, you're waiting constantly. I feel with a plan comes the waiting game because a plan has a beginning and an end and there is a middle bit and there is a bit, does the plan work? Is it sustainable to stay on this plan? Does it need to change? And I feel like as soon as we embark on that plan, there is a bit of a wait. Did you have that feeling of, I'm going to have to wait for five years now? Or how did that feel to you? Oh my gosh, waiting has been the theme. I didn't know, but waiting has been the theme of the last eight years now. <laughs> I didn't realize yeah. all that was going to happen. But um, yeah, I mean, for sure. It, um, But it, it also took on a different meaning, like a recognition that there is a waiting game. And sort of my mantra has been, you can... You have to show up for the life that you have in front of you and not the one you thought you'd have. Mm. And I realized you can kind of sit here and be like, oh my goodness, everyone's getting married. Everyone's having babies. Like this was supposed to be me. Or you could say, what can I do for myself in this time of waiting, right? Like recognizing it is a period of waiting, but there's ways in which you can make that time richer for yourself. And, you know, I chose to say, well, I'll focus on my career. I'll be the best aunt that I can be. I will be a godmother and friend to these little babies that are coming into the world. And when I look back at all of the time, I think how lucky I am to have had these unique relationships with the children in my life being completely child-free. Um, and also just that ability to, again, focus on, on me and learn about myself. I've done a lot of therapy and self-reflection, um, through this journey and as an individual grew, just continue to grow. Um, and so that's how I've chosen it. Listen, it's not to say that it's been easy, right? There's certainly days that are super frustrating and you, you just wonder, Um, you know, how come sometimes it's so seemingly easy, um, in other, in other, on the other side. Right. But, um, that's, we also know that that's not true. Everyone's got, you know, a period of waiting in their life. It just looks different. But it comes with a time where you mourn what you thought your future would look like. And think that is maybe true for all of us, whether people want to have children or not, whether, even if we don't have big grand plans, as soon as your life changes and makes such a big detour, like a cancer diagnosis takes us on such a big detour, there is a, I definitely had this morning of what I thought my life should be like. And even now, 10 years on, I sometimes mourn the carefreeness that life brought with it before my cancer diagnosis. And I haven't ever gotten back to that really super relaxed carefreeness. It's, it's been different. Yeah. And then we mourn for, things we've lost, you know, relationships change and we lost, we lose breasts and we lose body parts and whatever hair and whatever it is that we lose. So there's a lot of loss. And I guess the reflection you've done has must have really helped you um, to sort of understand that in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, I think to the, the second cancer diagnosis has really made me reflective of the journey and, and the loss, right? So whether it was- Hold I your was, horses, hold yeah. your horses. Okay. Let's talk everyone through yeah. this. Okay. The five years, the five years came. Yeah. You waited for five years. Your doctor said, right, let's give a break on tamoxifen and let's try for the baby. Talk me through that process. Yeah. So if I take just a couple steps back, right? Like those yes. five years actually, right? Like you're waiting, you're doing other things in your life. And I, I just was like, I think we're getting close to these five years, right? And so to give a current snapshot of where I was in my life, I I had, again, out of a different breakup. And um, I had always imagined this year as being like, you get to come off tamoxifen, you get to try to have a baby. And that also came along with, oh, I'll be married by then. I'll have met the person that I'm going to be with. Right. And I realized that this plan that we speak of is hilarious. Right. Because it, it, it it's not really a plan. Like it's a loose, you know, situation that we're trying to follow. But um, I, I started to get this thought where, you know, I wonder 
if this is something that I should pursue on my own, right? Like if I really want a child, that's the number one thing. Should I, should I think about having a child on my own? And it also just happened to be 2020. So, um, there was nothing else going on, right? There was not, (laughs) it was a global pandemic. I was living by myself. Um, we took, um, you know, isolation very seriously in my family. So I went from having this huge, I have a very big family, very close. We live together, like live within, you know, very close driving distance in the same state together. And we went from seeing each other all the time to all of us just being in these small pods. And, and so I, I was alone and I, I really started to look this, this thing in the face of like, this is it, this could be your life, right? Like you can do this on your own. You can do a global pandemic on your own. You can navigate this. Would you consider kind of having this baby on your own? And the wheels started turning. I wanted to wait another year to kind of have the world stabilize before yeah. bring, thinking about bringing a child into the world. So I celebrated six years of no evidence of disease. And then I said, I'll give myself one last fun summer right? Like pick a, pick a, pick a donor, right? Like go start to talk to my fertility doctor, which is what I was doing. I I was doing all the steps of giving myself enough time to kind of go through this process, but also getting really excited about it and and telling my family about it. And so I I chose a donor, I fertilized um, my eggs and um, I went through that process, right? Like as a, and it was really empowering as, as a single woman deciding I'm going to have a baby single mom by choice. Um, I was starting to talk to other single moms by choice. I felt healthy. Um, and I had an embryo transfer, um, in December of 2021. And I found out that I was pregnant. Um, but then, uh, just, a few days after that, found out that it was an eptopic um, pregnancy. And obviously this was devastating, right? Like it, it, yeah. it did honestly bring me back to being diagnosed in the mm-hmm. sense of just lack of control of what a results can bring. Um, and, you know, it, it was awful. And because it was an eptopic pregnancy and, and the medicine that they needed, they said, you know, there's this three month period of waiting before you can try again. Um, and it, it was again, like, okay, here's this waiting game, right? Um, but before you go into that next waiting game, yeah. and that sort of second six years of planning and hoping, yeah, six years of waiting for this chance of having that embryo transfer were shattered, right? It's yeah, such a heartbreak. Such a heartbreak. Yeah. I mean, that was in a way, and I've, I've said, I've shared this, I have a wonderful oncologist and I've shared this with her, like in a way, like finding out that I wasn't pregnant was harder than finding out that I, that I had had cancer. Yeah. Um, it just felt, I don't know whether you feel like it, it's owed to you somehow, right? Like to not have this kind of bad news two times in a row, like to, you know, um, but obviously the more I've, um, the more I've looked into infertility and and all that follows, um, you realize it's very common to infertility and cancer are, they go hand in hand often. Right. And I just, of course I didn't anticipate it. And, um, it was, it was truly your, the dream, like the dreams that you were dreaming really do, um, kind of poof into the air. Yeah. And I think this is one of the biggest things. Cancer comes with so many surprises. Mm. And it's good that we don't know all of them because some happen to us and some don't. Infertility happens to some and not others. Some are put into chemically induced menopause for 10 years. They've got no scooby-doo when that happens and that it might go on for such a long time and that there's so little support. We don't know what long-term side effects are going to really impact on us we can only be the best equipped to deal with them when they get thrown our way. So you then embarked on another thinking, I'm going to wait for a three months and I'm going to try again. Was that the next plan? It was. Yeah. Um, and to your point, like around knowing it's, it's good that we could not possibly know. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. 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 I think because, so. 
if, if someone told me that like we would all kind of have these steps in our lives, anything, right? Like you could cancer, not cancer. I think you'd go nuts kind of thinking about all the things Too that much. are about to come, right? So I, I was like, oh, I'm going to make my body a temple, right? Like I I, I exercise. I'm a, I'm a pretty fit person to begin with, right? Like mentally I need exercise, but I, I, I eat well. and But I was like, reading every article, getting my body ready um, for this next transfer. I remember it was going to be March. And um, at the same time, on the same side where I had had my mastectomy, I had felt a lump. And I, I was like, no, right? Like I had a mastectomy here. Like this is probably just leftover from the IVF medication, you know, but I also knew enough to not you know, prolong a conversation around this. And gosh, it was winter and there were so many actual winter storms that I remember shoveling my driveway to get out of the, the, um, driveway to, to get to these doctor's appointments, right? Like it wasn't easy to say, I'm going to go to these doctor's appointments. And, and, and they were like, we think it's nothing, right? But because of your history, we're going to keep testing. We're going to keep testing. And, you know, one month after finding out that I wasn't going to have carried this baby, I was also finding out that I was being re-diagnosed with breast cancer, um, which was a, was a shock. Um, yeah. I, I, I also, I, I interviewed for a job that day at my company and I, would, I knew I was gonna get the results and it was virtual, right? Like we do everything on Zoom. And I remember thinking, I finished the interview. I was like, that went great. Okay, awesome. Now I just need to hear from the doctors. Yeah. They're going to tell me everything's fine. Like it was so out of, I really didn't think that they, I was going to be re-diagnosed. Yeah. It wasn't possible to believe. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> possible to believe. And then you have to get your head around the disbelief. Yeah. And embodying that reality. And what that yeah. meant, yeah. I'm so sorry because I feel so engaged and emotionally attached to every single listener of ours. <laughs> I really do. All the stories I have sent in to us, um, my own story, my family's story. I feel there is so much pain and suffering mm -hmm. in this world with young people, with our hopes and dreams. And we show up so much and we do our best and we try so hard and yet life can be so cruel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how you then managed to go from then to today where you feel so brave to even speak to me about all of your experiences. I, you, I don't know where has your strength come from to, to deal with that double whammy. And what was the plan? The next plan? Was there another plan? There's always a plan, right? Like <laughs> I, I, I reframe things constantly for better or for worse. Um, and, and, you know, an exercise that I've tried with therapy is actually to like sit in the yuck sometimes, because maybe sometimes I, I move on from it too quickly. I, I quickly reframe, but, you know, in the same conversation that my doctor was at was, you know, letting me know that this was cancer and the good news is like likely localized, you know, we'll do a scan, but, but, you know, likely localized. I, I remember same exact conversation. I said, okay, what does this mean for me being a mom? And um, it was there that she first said to me, you know, have you ever thought about surrogacy? Would you consider surrogacy? Um, and just like, you know, IVF was introduced to me at age 30 as something you'd have to do. I sort of heard those words as the same thing, you know, like, okay. all right, right. Like, okay. You know, there's, probably lots of benefits to not getting pregnant. Right. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't handle thinking about that just yet. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. And my doctor was so great. She was like, you're probably going to have a lot of questions. It's a Friday afternoon. If anything happens, like call me. Right. She's the Amazing. best person in the world. We've had this relationship now, right. For seven years at this point. And, you know, over the weekend, I called her and I, I said, okay, I thought I was okay, but I need you to walk me down like the worst case scenario. Like I yeah. need to hear what happens if this is all over my body, what happens, right? Like walk me through what happens. 
Um, and, and she did, which, you know, I needed that. Maybe not everyone, everyone is going to handle it differently, but I needed to kind of hear what are my options if this goes fabulously well? And what are my options if this goes, you know, horribly or the, in the yeah. worst way that we can imagine? Yeah. Because, you know, this, this, this word plan keeps coming up in this conversation, right? Because then I could make a, I could wrap my head around it and I could think about what is the plan that I can build into the yeah. situation that I'm facing. Personally, I never dared to ask the questions. What if anything doesn't go to our first plan? Because I was so worried of the answers. Mm -hmm. But what happened for me then, my mind was making up the worst case answers and they probably were much worse than what my doctors yeah. would ever told me. And so I was making up all these monster scenarios for a long, 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 long time in my head. So I think you're amazing for asking the worst case scenario <laughs> yeah. question. And it just shows that we're all so different yeah. in how we navigate these life traumas. Yeah. Uh, I think you're stronger no because um, I had one weekend, not even a weekend. I had one night of those monsters in my head. And I was like, no way, somebody's got to talk facts to me because yeah, it just, yeah. it felt, it felt too wild to, to continue to imagine, you know. Yeah, it, that's um, a really good description. It was wild, wild thoughts we have sometimes. Mm. Um, so then your yeah. treatment for that secondary um, or second diagnosis, local recurrence. Yeah, so I, I had another surgery, same side, um, really not that invasive, honestly, because it was small. It hadn't spread, right? Like we did tests, we got all that good news, removed it. Um, healing was pretty seamless actually. Um, and in this time they said, you'll have radiation and then we'll, um, we'll do the Lupron and shot, um, injections and letrozole at the time to put you, which is an anero, ana, I get this wrong all the time. Aromatase inhibitor. Inhibitor. Yes. Thank you. Um, to put you into an induced menopause. And at this point they're like, you're good with surrogacy. Okay. And I said, you know, could I harvest my eggs one more time? Um, and they let me, um, they said, okay, like, um, prior to your radiation starting, we'll give you this window of time to harvest your eggs one more time. And for me, that just felt, you know, like a blessing, um, just in case, I don't know, like a just in case basket, you know, I, I yeah, felt like yeah. the world had given me so many reasons to have a just in case plan or a backup plan. And so I asked, right. Like I had learned from the first experience, ask, you know, ask questions around what's possible. Um, and so I, between the surgery and starting my radiation, I harvested my eggs one more time and, and then I started my radiation. Um, and simultaneously, I happened to have a friend who was going through IVF, had difficulties, also had a cancer diagnosis and was exploring kind of both options of surrogacy agencies versus being able to carry one more, one child. Um, and so she had done all the research on, on agencies and I was like, Oh, you chose that one? And she's like, yeah, I'm like, sounds good. Like, I will take the information. <laughs> and and she was like, there's a really long wait, right? Like right now, because of COVID, because of just in general, like an increase in people utilizing surrogacy, there's, there's a long wait. It's going to be like at least a year before you're matched. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I'm going to be in radiation. So let me talk to them. Let me sign the contract, like get the clock ticking and, and then start radiation. And I, I think a lot of people thought I was nuts um, to kind of try to do both these things in the same like time yeah. period. But for me, it was the only way I knew how to, how to feel normal. Um, and feel like, okay, I'm working towards something at the same time as getting my body ready for something to like to be healed. Yeah. And I'm sure the process of surrogacy um, and IVF will be very different in different countries and different parts of the yes. world. Yeah. Um, you had your friend sort of guiding you and it saved you a little bit of research time, right? Although you <laughs> sound like someone who does a lot of research and asks all of the right questions. <laughs> Where are you 
at now with your chemically induced menopause? How does that feel? How mm. um, how long have you been going through this? So it's been about a year and a half, and it, it's been a journey. So um, this is one of the periods where I've been grateful for the weight um, because of how I just didn't expect this. I didn't expect to feel this way after being put into in menopause. I I had been on tamoxifen those those years, and I I didn't have any kind of reaction. I think I was very lucky to that. I, I volunteer with a cancer hospital where I talk to young women who've been diagnosed, and you know they have had issues with it, and they you know, but I was lucky in that I hadn't, and I just I felt like that was going to be the case this time. And I just was like, okay, so I'll get hot. Okay. I could deal with getting hot. Like I'll drink water. Right. Like I was just so naive (laughs) to what was about to happen to me. And I mentioned, I'm very physical. Like, so my joints started hurting. I all of a sudden wasn't sleeping. Um, I, I just, I was uncomfortable, like vaginal dryness, like it all came at me. And I didn't, it it was just truly shocking to me. Like this was the shocker more than anything, just of, oh my goodness, how can this be my new normal? This I'm, I'm 38 years old. This cannot be my life, right? This is where I started to get angry, um, and frustrated and, and cry. And, and just, I didn't understand it. I was not my best self. Um, and the kind of the, breaking point for me was I was hanging out with a friend who has a a little two-year-old. Then I went to go pick her up from the floor and I could, didn't have the strength to stand up and pick her up in my arms, like in one swoop. And I was like, I'm supposed to be a single mom by choice. Like, how am I supposed to take care of this future child? And I can't even go down the steps without my feet hurting. Um, I spoke to a lady just this morning who is also in chemically induced menopause. And she said in the morning it hurts her to lift the duvet off her chest. That's how much her fingers and her arms and her body aches. Yeah. And she's also really frustrated. She's also really young and she's just in a lot of pain. Um, are you feeling yeah. a bit better now? And what so, have you done to, what have yeah. you done to sort of, yeah. I, I really, I overhauled a lot of things and I also switched up my medication a little bit. So again, like so grateful that I went to my doctor to kind of say, this is happening. I can't sleep. Therefore I can't exercise. I know exercise is supposed to help. Right. Um, and we switched from letrozole to, um, extamestane. And I also started taking gabapentin, which very low dosage, helping me sleep. And those two things were a game changer in giving me just enough sleep to be able to start a routine. Um, And I can remember at that point too. So through my second diagnosis, I decided to stop drinking. Um, And I I just wanted to do that with radiation. I just felt like it would be better if I wasn't drinking alcohol and then when it was over, I, I started drinking again that summer. Mm. And, um, and then both my sisters decided, you know, both because of my history and at the more we read about alcohol, you know, they were like, it's not for me. We're going to stop. Um, and I, I have FOMO often with my sisters. And I was like, well, that <laughs> doesn't seem fair that you guys are not going to drink. And I, what? So I was like, okay, I'll also quit, right? Like, it's not good that I, I'm drinking. So I just was testing the waters. And so I stopped drinking alcohol and I, I started to feel really better. It helped my sleep. Right. And, and then I really committed to, because everywhere I read it was about strength training um, and, and walking and moving your body. And so I started a walk a day and two times a week I committed to strength training. Um, and I, I started this, I, her name's the glucose goddess. She has a framework for having apple cider vinegar and a veggie starter. And like, it was all these things all of a sudden around diet, exercise and alcohol, and obviously switching my medicine that I just was like, oh, I'm in a routine. I'm feeling good. Yeah. You had the plan. 
Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> you had a plan. <laughs> I have a quick favor to ask to help the show keep growing. Please click the follow button on your podcast player. It really would mean a lot to me. Thank you. And it's interesting when I speak to women in our programs or workshops and you have an array of symptoms, like they go around in a circle of uh, menopause, chemically induced menopause or surgically uh, menopause and it's sleep, it's the joints, it might be anxiety and the fatigue. Um, and we don't always know where do we need to start to improve the wheel. For you, it was sleep. And I think it's really important to say that it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah. But it's important to start not thinking, how can I fix all of my issues? But how can I start with one of those symptoms that reoccur every day so that when I improve this one, it has a positive effect of others. Mm -hmm. And for you, it was you improved your sleep. It got you out of bed um, a little bit more energetically. You could then maybe cook for yourself, prepare those veggie starters, move yeah. again. And so it was, it's interesting, isn't it? Some people might have to start with getting rid of their joint ache so that they can regain a little bit of an access to exercise again. Yeah. But I think sometimes women think they've got to fix it all to feel better. But what I'd like to say is, it's okay to start with one part yeah. and other pieces often fall into place. Yeah. I mean, you're so spot on. Like that sleep thing for me was like the linchpin, right? Like if I could yeah. get just a couple more hours of sleep, I felt yeah. like I could do just one more thing after that and one more thing after that. And yeah. I know I sort of just spoke about it all magically coming together, but it very much was add one more thing, add one more yeah. thing. And you've worked hard. Like mm -hmm. I know, because I also really, really changed everything about my life 10 years ago. It's hard bloody work. <laughs> you cannot do it with just sitting there and watching lots of Netflix. It won't yeah. work. It takes dedication. You need to show up for yourself. You need to almost believe that you are so worth it and treat yourself like a goddess. Like yeah. I am worth it to make really lovely meals for myself. I'm worth it to, I don't know, buy myself nice leggings because I'm going out there every single day. <laughs> we just need True. to really think. And it's a lot of work and dedication. And sometimes people have the family and the kids and elderly parents and jobs. And it's really hard to put that attention into ourselves. Yeah. I totally get it. But it's overwhelming where we think we have to change it all. And it's much more doable when we think out of everything that is going on for me right now, if I could improve one thing, who can help me improve that thing? It yeah. might be a doctor, like you had access to medication through your doctor, gabapentin helped you. It yeah. might be an antidepressant for someone else. It might yeah. be melatonin for someone else. It might be a switch of medication. What is the one thing that we can do now? And I think that's enough, right? Yeah. And the conversations, right? Like being vulnerable enough to consistently advocate for yourself to say like, I still feel this way, right? Like I still don't feel great yeah. based on this treatment plan. Like what are my options? And I'm grateful that my oncologist has, you know, created that space for us to have that conversation. I recognize that that's not the case always in our healthcare system, but you know, just continuously asking that question of like, okay, I'll give something three months, but like, I'm still going to come back and, and say, I feel X, Y, Z, if this isn't working for me, right? Like, what's this balance of keeping me safe, but also ensuring that I have a quality of, of life at age 38, right? Yeah. Um, at any age, right? Any age. We've been yeah. through so yeah. much. Yeah. You've been through so much already. It's so important that we show up for ourselves, but also be able to sit in a body that allows us to enjoy life. It's yeah. really important. Yeah. Where in your surrogacy journey are you? I've you said there is a, a wait and it takes a long time at the yeah. moment to be matched. I didn't know you had to be matched. Yeah. So oh where boy, are you yeah. at in that process? <laughs> yeah. So it took a very long time. It was about um, a year and a half of waiting. But the good news of that was um, I did get to, you know, really focus on myself. When I look back, I think had it all kind of happened overnight for me, it, it I would have obviously welcomed it. But it, I look back and I'm grateful for the time that I had to kind of figure out some of these pieces before there's a world where I'm not sleeping again. Um, and <laughs> I, so I was matched with a surrogate on Father's Day of this year, um, which was felt special, right? Um, and 
you, you zoom, you meet, you meet one another, you go through a medically clearance, you know, process, um, which also takes some time and, um, and then you, you drop a contract. Um, and so this process, this window of time typically takes three to four months, or at least it did in my case. And then, um, and then you, you start an IVF cycle, um, with, with your surrogate. So that's where she is. Um, she's currently in her IVF cycle, um, right now she's getting her blood tested. She's doing all the things I did, you know, and then we are hoping for a transfer an IVF transfer of an embryo, um, in the beginning of October. So we'll know. <laughs> I, I almost can't wait, can't bear to wait with you now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, you have to promise me to come back onto the podcast, whatever happens yeah. in a year or 18 months time or two years time or whenever and continue the story. Yeah. I You're will. on another plan. There is more waiting. There is. Um, you, know, you know, I can't, I can't wait, but think the empowerment for us women after having gone through, you know, generations and generations of having put down by our society and by men, by having, you know, not really always chosen our path. Mm -hmm. You are really, really, really choosing your path. And against all obstacles, you're choosing to go down this path. And I've got goosebumps thinking, wow, I'm excited for this next generation of women. You are leading the way. You know, I've, I was so lucky. I, I was diagnosed at 33 and I had my children. I had three children mm -hmm. by then. If I had been diagnosed at 30, like you now, I might be in a similar situation and navigating the possibilities perhaps of ever having children myself. And so I know life can just take us into all these different directions. But I'm thinking of the next generation and sharing your story gives me so much hope okay. that this next generation of women out there is going to be as empowered as you in creating this total agency over becoming parents, choosing to become a parent. Yeah. At what point and through it, whichever way, like you said earlier, there are many ways to form a family and you're on one path. Yeah. And that could change too, right? Like the reason is like, I've opened up all these pathways in my brain of yeah. right now I have embryos. That might not be the case, right? Like you could look into donor injuries. We're, we're living in a time, fortunately, where there's so many true options to become a parent. Um, and I, I'm super grateful for the science and people who dedicate themselves to making this a reality for, it yeah. truly takes a village. Like it gives a new meaning to, to, you know, the village that helps to raise a child, but also that takes a village to bring that child into the world. Um, and I'll say, you, you talked about buying nice things for yourself. I'll say, I, when I, I, I just purchased a ring for myself because I thought, well, I'm entering this on my own. I, I want to, I want to treat myself to a ring. And I, I chose a piece of sea glass to make a ring out of because when I look at sea glass, I recognize like it starts off as something and it goes into the ocean and it just gets tumbled around and it's beaten up and it swirls and it swirls and it swirls and the waves keep coming and you don't feel like you're going to be able to come up and you come out on the other side and I, and it's, it's still beautiful. Um, and so I have chosen that as sort of my representation of this journey that continues. Um, that I will always come out the other side stronger. I will still be beautiful. I will still be me. I will just be shaped differently because of the experiences. I've got nothing to add, Elizabeth. That is amazing. You are you. such an inspiration. And I can't wait to talk to you again. I know. I well, wish thank you, you so much for, for creating this space for people to listen um, and for people to listen on repeat, um, when they need it again, um, I've, I've really just been absorbing all these episodes. Um, so thank you for the work that you do. Um, thank you so much for today. I'm so glad we have met. And when you said it takes a village, I always think, wow, if my journey had been different, I would have never met these incredible people and, one of my daughters once said to me, mommy, would you, would you go back and rather not have the cancer? And mm -hmm. when she asked me, I said, yeah, of course, gosh, I'd rather go back and never having had that cancer diagnosis. And now sometimes 
I look back and I think, wow, I've met all these amazing, amazing people and every single connection is truly special. And I'm so grateful for that, that I don't know what I'd quite answer sometimes. Uh, today is one of those days. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. What a remarkable story and what a remarkable woman Elizabeth is. And if you are sitting at home, maybe out for your walk, maybe you've joined our walking challenge and you're out there and the leaves are rustling around your feet and you've walked yourself into the autumn and you're thinking, I would also like to share my story on the Menopause and Cancer podcast with Danny, then do reach out to us. I was so touched when Elizabeth reached out to us and when she wanted to share her story. It's a real story of vulnerability but also hope and I think that's exactly what I want to discuss here on the podcast. A, we want to talk about all of the options we have to improve our symptoms but we know so much more comes with a cancer diagnosis, comes with menopause than just physical symptoms. It is such a big array of mental and emotional impact that uh, this life change has upon us and I would love to discuss it all with you so do reach out to us. And if you've been walking for a few weeks with us, then I hope you're really enjoying the walking challenge as much as I do. And as much as I can see people on social media and in our Facebook group popping in and sharing their beautiful pictures of their beautiful walks. I certainly feel stronger already. I feel I'm really boosting my immune system this autumn by being out there more. It's giving me a real grounding feeling. I just love watching the seasons change. And in fact, I'm looking out the window now and I just think when I look at nature and when I look at trees, this is kind of like what sums up my experience of menopause after cancer for me. Nothing ever stays the same. Everything is transient. Like at the moment, the trees are almost bare of leaves and they're definitely heading towards that direction. And then everything is going to calm down. The world is going to start to go to sleep until it wakes up again in spring. And this is kind of like the cycle I feel I go through when I manage my symptoms, when I'm sometimes more engaged and sometimes less engaged in how I'm managing my menopause since my ophrectomy and since my cancer diagnosis. And yeah, so reach out to us if you want to come onto the podcast, but also I hope you're really enjoying the walk and I hope you also felt as moved by today's episode as I was. And thank you again, Elizabeth, for joining us. Mm -hmm.